Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. In the past few months, we released around 30 interviews on various aspects of the coronavirus crisis as part of our special COVID-19 coverage. But because we prioritized those episodes due to the timely fashion and urgency of the crisis, we actually delayed the scheduled release of some of our earlier interviews, which are equally fascinating and important. One group of those interviews come from the 2020 annual conference of Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. And this year, our conference theme is development finance in fragile states. Some of you may know that I love attending academic conferences. I get to hear fascinating ideas that people are working on across the world. And I get to interview some of those scholars and policymakers about their journeys. This interview with Professor Rachel Glenister was recorded at our 2020 annual conference. She is the chief economist for the UK Department for International Development, which is United Kingdom's Ministry for International Development Cooperation. Previously, Professor Glenister was the executive director of JPOW, the Jameel Poverty Action Lab at MIT. Professor Glenister gave the closing keynote remarks at our conference, where she touched on challenges of working in fragile states and the linkages between macro and micro policies. The economic policy tools that we know that are used in advanced economies often do not exist or are ineffective in poor conflict-afflicted areas. Uh, shifts in macro level policies can also often have devastating effects on the household level, leading to hyperinflation, parallel exchange rates, or major debt crises. So in this interview, Professor Glenister and I discuss some of the innovative policy and research tools available specifically for fragile states, uh, for example, RCT, randomized control trials. And we touch on various debates on foreign aid, nonprofits, and we talk about what's it like to work in Africa. I hope you enjoy, and here's my interview with Professor Rachel Glenister. Thanks so much for being here with me, Professor Glenister. It's such an honor to have you on the show. It's great to be at Princeton and here. Uh, so today we're going to mostly be talking about uh, development issues since uh, th that's something you've worked on your whole life. And also, uh, you are here on campus uh, for the Princeton's Jules Rabinowitz Center's uh, uh, annual conference, and this year our conference, to conference topic is development finance in fragile states. So uh, you're going to be having a closing keynote conversation for us this Friday, and uh, why don't we start off there? What will you be talking about uh, here on campus? Uh, what are some of the quick lessons you think we can we can learn? Great. So uh, yeah, it's great to be here, and it's fantastic that um, this conference is focused on fragile states because in the world of development, fragile states are becoming more and more important. Um, our estimates inside DFID are that the um, over eighty percent of the extreme poor will be will uh, will be in fragile in states that are currently fragile um, in the next 20 and 30 years. So so more and more of the world's poor are going to be in fragile states, more and more um, the, the issue of poverty is going to be an issue of fragility. And that's basically because we've been doing quite a, um, quite well at reducing poverty where there's stability. Where countries are stable, we kind of know a lot about how to reduce poverty. Uh, countries are growing. 
child mortality is going down, um, your life expectancy is going up. So we're making a lot of progress in non-fragile states, but where there's conflict, where states aren't working effectively, we're, we're not making as much progress. So, so I'll be talking about the challenges of fragile states. Um, in particular, they want me to talk about finance in fragile states. Um, I mean, this is an area I've worked on kind of both macro policy and micro policy. Um, and so one of the things that's quite difficult in a fragile state is the normal policy levers that you have, you know, in the UK or the US or other developed countries, you want to stimulate the economy, you change the interest rate and, you know, you can manipulate that quite uh, carefully and you have impacts on growth. You kind of pull the levers in a fragile state and you don't always have much happening on the ground. Like it's marked that there's a bit of a disconnect from what the state is able to do and people's lives on the ground. So you have to kind of think about how to affect people's lives in different ways than these sort of standard macro uh, macro levers that we often use in, de in developed countries. So... Unfortunately, you can still screw things up at a macro level, like hyperinflation will still, you know, if you get things really badly wrong, you will still cause a lot of pain for, for people, um, you know, on the ground, poor people living in rural communities. But, um, but it's much harder to do things at a national level that will, that will make things better. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll talk about some of the things that have been, have been able to work in fragile states and, and also some of the challenges. Uh, so why don't we just uh, keep that trend of thought and, and go from there. What are some of the good examples of uh, implementation of, pro of projects in fragile states and what are some uh, that aren't? Yeah, so I think one of the um, things that's, that, that I've worked on um, is, a, is a project I, um, on community-driven development that I, I evaluated immediately after the 10-year civil war in Sierra Leone. So Sierra Leone is increasingly not a fragile state, but back in 2004 it was. It had just come out of a devastating 10-year civil war. And and there was an experiment to try and get money to poor communities, you know, almost immediately after the end of the civil war. And there wasn't a lot of government infrastructure in place yet. So there weren't a lot of mechanisms to get money to to rural communities. <clears throat> so the idea was just to give pots of money to those rural communities themselves and help them figure out what they wanted to spend the money on. And and it you know we we assessed it at the time and found that despite the fact that there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of procedures to make sure you know exactly how that money was spent it still led to improvements on the ground even though these communities were very poor they didn't have a lot of educated people they they used this money quite effectively to improve um, their own living standards and we actually went back 10 years later and found that the infrastructure in the communities that got that money was still better 10 years later than the control group. So, you know, there was a persistent effect of giving that money um, early on. So I think that's something that you, that's one of the things that has proven to be effective. It, just in general, I think it's really important in fragile states to help support governments to get legitimacy, to start having a presence and working in, in, you know, even quite marginalized communities where the state doesn't reach. So a big problem of fragile states is they're not they're not present, they're not active, they're not able to 
you know, make things better for people throughout the whole country. They may have control in the capital, but they need to get, um, you know, working effectively across the whole country. And and I think in terms of what you asked, what doesn't work well, sometimes in fragile states, we, we try and work around the government. And sometimes we're forced to because the government isn't actually, work, you know, isn't functioning. But to the extent possible, we need to work with governments to improve their legitimacy because that that that's crucial. Building that legitimacy is crucial for sort of ending conflict and getting trust in a functioning state again. The other thing that I think doesn't work um, and is something that donors in particular have to be really careful of is overburdening um, countries that are coming out of conflict or other reasons for fragility. So, you know, we go in and we say, oh, you know, this group wants to reform the civil service and this group wants to change the tax system and this group, you know, and, you know, every donor has demands of this country and they're just trying to get started and they don't have a lot of people or a lot of capacity, a lot of money. And we sometimes overburn them with, uh, with rules, you know, that sort of trying to make them look like us immediately in a way that is just not feasible. And then the whole thing just kind of breaks down because because we're expecting too much. I, I feel like there's so much to unpack from that conversation, but I just want to quickly go back to the, uh, the good example first. So yeah. you said you went to those local communities, you give them the funding, they were able to build out those infrastructure, and there was a persistent yeah. effect. Uh, but obviously, th- there are definitely cases in development where you give the local government's money and then ends up having a regression. So what are some of the common traits of those communities? Were there communities where uh, there were some level of political stability or or were there other uh, sort of measures that you put in place in order to guarantee some level of success? Uh, Why don't we go a little bit more into the the nuanced context? Yeah. So, I mean, I can talk a bit more about that program and then I can go out wider to kind of what are some general lessons about what's effective. So in this particular program, um, and and there are many of these kinds of programs around the world. What you're really doing is kind of putting your faith in the local community to to figure out how they want to spend the money effectively. And very often, um, communities have some local structures already in place, particularly communities that have gone through a civil war. Very often when the state breaks down, you still get local communities sort of organizing themselves. So, you know, in in London, someone comes and collects my trash, somebody, you know, educates my kids. Um, there's, you know, streetlights working. In a, in a country where that has been in civil war and been in conflict that is fragile, the state isn't very effective. Very often communities themselves are having to organize the equivalent of all those things. <laughs> And and so they have mechanisms in place to do that. And in a sense, community-driven development is kind of building off those existing mechanisms and saying, until we have the state set up schools, set up trash collection, we, we need to do something quickly to help them. So we're going to give funds to the existing community structures and let them figure out how to do it. Now, there's usually also a set of monitoring that goes with it, uh, a set of facilitation to try and make sure that women and young people um, 
are included in the decision making, I think that's actually less important than just the fact that you're getting cash out really to the grassroots very early on uh, when nothing else is kind of functioning. Because people want to get into the action. They, wanna... what they want to they want to build rebuild their communities. They have already been surviving without the state. Um, uh, effectively. It's a people of re- resilience. Yeah, there's a lot there's unbelievable resilience in these communities that have come through hardship in a way that like we just I think find it hard to understand when when we come from societies yeah. where so much is done for us. These communities are having to do so much for themselves. They have a lot of knowledge about how to make things work. They have a lot of knowledge about what is needed and they can kind of just get on with it. Um, I'm not underplaying. There are a lot of a, a lot of traditional, you know, there will be minorities who are excluded and there are bad things about it. But when you're in when you're in a post conflict recovery phase, not everything is going to be perfect. That's that's sort of part of my argument too is you can't expect everything to be perfect. You can't there will you know, you can't you can't hope that nothing will go wrong with that money and that that um, it'll all be given equally and the, the elite won't take some of the money. Like that's going to be part of the story. But they are still using the money quite effectively in the sense that their, you know, lives are better. Uh, the infrastructure is better. They they know they know what they're doing. They can they can make things happen. Uh, and so it's kind of trusting that local mechanism early on before you've built the rest of the state uh, around it, which I think the lessons are. And we, we evaluate it in Sierra Leone. Other people have evaluated it in Afghanistan and Liberia and Congo and all have come up with a similar um, conclusion. conclusion that you can get money out quickly in these post-conflict environments and people will actually use it to improve their lives. So, so how does the process how would act, actually work? So uh, I, I suppose yep. uh, the international organization would step in but then you're still going to another sovereign territory where there's Oh yeah. So right? I should I should be very clear. This was money that came from the World Bank. Yes. But it came through the government of Sierra Leone. So it was lent to the government of Sierra Leone. And then this and then the government of Sierra Leone had structures in place to get it. I mean they they had some monitoring. They set up teams who would go talk to the communities. They had checks on what the money was spent on. So it's not like there was no checks. But it was still a reasonably rapid way. They, so they set up a bank account. They went to villages. They got the villages to set up a bank account. They got them to set up a community group that would oversee the bank account and you know, a set of discussions about what they should use the money for. And then, then they delivered the money into the village bank account and you know and then the village had to say what they spent it on and so there were there were procedures but it but it was still a relatively quick way of getting money to a very grassroots level you know relatively soon after the end of the war uh, so i suppose uh, it was both uh, bottoms up and also top yes. down in in the sense that you'd still have uh, the outsider insight uh, yep. from an international organization like IMF or World Bank to, to kind of guide you through the process. Uh, what did the the local communities feel? Because I know there are so many examples that we hear where uh, you know the uh, quote unquote the Western power kind of come in, step in with 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 resources yep. and money, uh, and kind of end up actually destroying some of the domestic market structures or uh, competition or or uh, so. So how do we really feel about those things? 
So, so again, I, I should stress that this came through the government of Sierra Leone. So exactly. they, they would have seen it as a government of Sierra Leone thing. They wouldn't yeah. necessarily have realized that the money ultimately came from the World Bank. Uh, I think that's quite important because, as we yeah. say, in a post-conflict environment, you're trying to build up the capacity of the state. You want people to understand government legitimacy. So that was quite important. Um, I think so in terms of in terms of the broader question you're asking about you know, does aid or interference from other countries sort of undermine local uh, local autonomy? I mean, that's a really hard question. And I think it would be odd if there was the same answer everywhere in the world to, you know, whenever an outsider came in, it's always good, it's always bad. That's, I mean, that's, we wouldn't expect that to be the case. Like, you you know, there are different outsiders, they come in for different reasons, there are different communities. So, I think that's kind of too general a question in of a course. sense to answer. <laughs> um, we can say what do you what do you need to be careful of if you come in, and the outsider could be an aid agency, it could be a you know a government that's from hundreds of miles away. What what are the things that you need to worry about? Well, I would say the first thing you need to do is make sure you understand the local problem. Right, so. So if you try and come in and have a preconceived idea of what the problem is and try and solve that without checking that that actually is a problem in the place where you're trying to work. I know that sounds basic, but I think that's often, often ignored. ignored. Well, not often ignored. It's often at the root of when things go wrong is um, that, that you were trying to, solve, yeah. you're trying to solve a problem that wasn't actually a problem to start with. Right. So the first thing that you do as you when you come in for an outsider is understand the problem. And you understand the problem by like talking to pe local people. What do you think is the problem? And you also look at data. Because uh, some problems people don't, local people don't actually know are problems. So because they don't know that life could be different. They just assume that, you know, a quarter of kids die before they're five. Like that's just normal. Well, it's normal for them, but we know that there's a difference. So you need to ask people, but you also need to look at data because people don't or local people don't always know. Um, but but if you do the combination of the two and sort of triangulate the two, then that, then that's important. You can't triangulate two things, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, so So diagnose the problem. Think really carefully about the lessons that have what has worked in other places that have been similar, and then get local. Then you usually need some, you know, working with local communities about what are solutions that make sense to them that would be acceptable to them. So you want to, in just in general, you want to learn both from other experiences, other communities, what's worked elsewhere, but also really understand the local concept. So I, I. Um, uh, I sometimes call this idea um, globally informed but locally grounded. Yes. <laughs> right. So you need to work. You need to understand the local con context, but you also, but that doesn't mean you ignore all the lessons from the rest of the world. Okay, I I, I totally get that part. Awesome. Uh, so I suppose um, you make those small steps and and you do those community driven grounds up approaches, and then what's next? Do you uh, do we try to bring out more? bigger institutional reforms soon afterwards? Is that, uh, is that process, uh, the later step, not part of... Uh, yeah, I mean, your... you have to be... I think 
in rich countries and poor countries, we have to be working bottom up and top down. I mean, you you know, some things you can't solve from the community level. You have to solve hyperinflation, not something you can work on from the bottom up. You've got to work at national level, uh, you know, getting exchange rate policy right, getting, you know, getting rid of hyperinflation. These are things that community can't solve. It's got to be national level. So, You've got you've got to again diagnose the problem, take on sort of the most important issues. So the the main thing you have to think about in fragile states is they can't cope, they can't tackle everything at once. So you've got to prioritize. You've got to think about what are the key things that are most important for getting stability. So you know, arguably peace. Uh, that's not something I you know I'm an expert on, but you kind of need to get peace um, going to be able to start working. Uh, and then there's often very like basic, big macro level questions um, uh, of you know making sure that, as I say, that you don't have hyperinflation and that the exchange rate is is you're not having one exchange rate for some people and another exchange rate for other people because that just leads to a huge amount of corruption. So that's that's often two of the big things that you start with. And then you start working down from there. And as they say, bottom up and pop top down at the same time, I think, is often the, the best strategy. Awesome. Uh, I just want to also quickly uh, talk about your work on randomized control trials. Because yes. I know this is a big part of your research, yep. your work, and something you really pioneered in this field. So uh, I've learned from my introductory econometrics class yep. that so th- random controls trials so you're basically studying impacts of social programs or your medicines mm-hmm. very commonly used uh, by randomizing individuals into control groups or, or and then you kind of examine the effects after a period of time uh, does that sound like something uh, relatively accurate <laughs> yeah so you so so you you want to test the impact of an intervention and you randomize some people to get the intervention and some people not and that allows you to isolate the causal impact of the intervention. The causal part is very important. It's very important because often if you just look at data and you say, well, the uh, schools with lots of textbooks, kids are learning more. You don't know whether they're learning more because they had lots of textbooks or because those are the schools with more, you know, better parent teacher, uh, you know, parents who are more, more, devoted. Pa- more devoted to exactly. their kids and they spend more on they give more donations to the school and it's actually the parents drive and not the textbooks that that is the cause of the improvement so if you're doing policy you really want to know what's causal not just what's correlational and so randomized trials allow you to test get the causal impact of one thing uh, so what are some of the good examples of RCT, uh, short for randomized control trials. Like, uh, what have you kind of done? I know you've, uh, I, I think, written a book that kind of really documented through uh, some of the successful cases. Yeah, so, I mean, there are many, but um, something that I worked on was um, microcredit. So there were a lot of, there was a lot of excitement about um, microcredit um, and that it could uh, lead to a transformation in, in the lives of the poor. Uh, but not a lot of this is microcredit is exactly the kind of thing that you worry about. The people who take it up are not going to be the same as the people who don't take it up. So just looking at correlation is really going to be quite misleading for microcredit because, mm-hmm. you know, the sorts of women who will go out there and be the first to take up microcredit are likely to be more entrepreneurial and more gutsy and 
uh, and going to be different from the people who don't take it up. So what we did is we worked with a microcredit organization, Spandana, and they randomized which communities they were going to introduce microcredit to. And then we interviewed all the women, basically. in So a random sample, but actually a large number of women in both the treatment areas, so areas where they could have taken up microcredit, where there was microcredit available, and then women in communities where there was no microcredit available, and saw how those women were faring in the different communities. And we found relatively little difference between the women who in communities that had microcredit and didn't have microcredit. Um, so there was no increase in consumption. There was a slight increase in the number of businesses. Um, and there was no increase in women's empowerment. So a lot of the stories that have been told about microcredit turned out not to be effective. And we were just one of the groups that looked at this. So it's now been looked at by many different people in using randomized trials and very similar results across very different um, communities that microcredit doesn't have as much impact as people are hoping. And I don't think it's bad. I think it's a useful tool. Everyone wants to be able to smooth their income from one month to the next. You might get a shock. You might. So you want to be able to save. A lot of people are basically using it as a savings mechanism to smooth income from one month to another. But it's not, it's not transforming their lives. Uh, it sounds like a pretty pessimistic outcome that we're, we're getting here. So, so uh, I think you've done a great job kind of uh, cautioning us not to directly jump to the, the extreme end and saying this is not effective. Uh, but it's certainly not as transformative as a lot of people yeah. had branded to be. Uh, th- th- don't you walk away from that example <laughs> thinking, like, yeah. So, so I think what's really important in development is to understand two things. One is we have made a huge amount of progress in development. So Poverty is dramatically declining. Infant mortality has uh, fallen. Life expectancy has gone up. Like it's just the world is hugely better off than it was 20 years ago. You know, people say, oh, the poor are getting poorer. No, they're not. The poor are getting richer. They are finally catching up. Uh, now, it may, that may be true in the US, but in the world as a whole, the poor are getting richer. So that's one good thing. So we shouldn't get too downhearted. Um, in terms of anti-poverty programs, yes, there are a lot that haven't wor- worked as well as they're not as transformative as we'd hoped. But there are a lot that have worked. And I think the thing to understand is I talk about this as thinking about aid or poverty programs, uh, anti-poverty programs, a bit like a venture capitalist. right? Not everything in their portfolio is going to work. But some of them work so spectacularly that they make the rest of the portfolio they put you know the whole portfolio <laughs> as a whole is has a really high return you put it over the top yeah yeah and that's and people say oh but you're cherry picking no no no, no. that's not that's not the way to think about it overall like, we've made overall progress. we've made progress and overall these interventions there are some that are just so spectacularly effective you can you know if we look at the rollout of um, free insecticide malarial bed nets, um, which an RCT was used to show that 
it's actually completely fine to give out malaria bed nets for free. So there's a big argument about whether you should give them for free. And if you give them for free, people won't use them. So someone tested that. It was like, OK, we'll charge for some and we'll give others for free. Get much higher take up if you give it for free and people will use them. They will hang them in there and, and use them. So you might as well give them for free. So there was a massive rollout of free insecticide bed nets across Africa. 400 million fewer cases of malaria. 400 million fewer cases of malaria. 4 million fewer deaths from malaria. Like that is an absolutely extraordinary win. Um, so, and that that was done over, uh, you know, that, that's been modeled by, by seeing how many cases there are, seeing the dramatic decline in, in malaria. So, you know, some things are just unbelievably spectacularly effective. We can't always know in advance which ones they're going to be, but as a whole portfolio, that's kind of your Google in the portfolio. Like you, inv That's like investing in Google as a venture capitalist in, you know, in its early years. Right? And that's how you should think about it. You, you're not holding yourself up to the standard that everything will work. We were talking about fragile states, how hard it is to make something work in a really dysfunctional country. Not everything is going to work. That's not the standard that we should be going for. Uh, I just think that sometimes it's so uh, hard to remain optimistic or hopeful when you see some of the problems that, that, that we desperately want to solve these days. So I, I always ask our guests this question, how you measure progress, the term progress, because you said we've made huge amount of progress. And, yep. and honestly, if you look at, you know, the global history, whether in, in economic sort of materialistic ways, we've made tremendous amount of progress. But many others would argue, yeah, you know, spiritually or, or mentally, you know, on a relative level, you know, people's happiness are, are judged by a, a relative level and uh, people are not really becoming happier or making much progress on that front. And uh, um, so I think I think once you get to higher levels of income, you certainly money doesn't buy happiness. I completely agree with that. Um, and there's lots of things that we it's not all about money. Economics is not all about money. Um, you know, we look at poverty rates, but we also look at education and health and all these other and empowerment. I spend a lot Diversity, of Diversity, right? Yeah, you said. Yeah. yeah. And so I spend a lot of my time working on RCTs on women's empowerment and looking at their autonomy and their ability to make decisions. However, having worked in some of the poorest places in the world, there is a level at which income is just really important for happiness. Like if a large number of your kids are dying before they reach the age of five, if you're if you yourself, if you know, the life expectancy is forty nine, which it was in Sierra Leone not very long ago. Um if you have you know no access to clean water and electricity and you're working very, very long hours in subsistence agriculture, which is literally back back breaking and despite working very long hours in agriculture, you don't make enough, you don't get enough food to kind of, to not be malnourished. And those are the, that's that's the situation of the communities that I, I've been working in, where 70% of people, of adults, never went inside a school door. Like they had literally zero years of education. That then 
basic resources does lead to happiness, I think. We, you know, we're now in, in a generation we have changed from having no, virtually no one in the village go to school to virtually every kid going to school. Uh, we have seen, you know, kids are not dying at anything like the rate. Uh, more people have enough to eat. Though it just those things we know how to fix those things, and when they're coming back to a, you know the the beginning of the conversation, where there's not war, we know how to fix those things, and we can fix them, and a relatively small amount of money can fix them. I'd argue that does lead to happiness, that it, you are just much more likely to be happy when you have enough to eat um, and you're able to benefit from education and you're not worrying about your kid dying. Uh, th that totally makes sense because I listened to your interview with Vox Media's show uh, called Displaced and, and in, in which an interesting idea was brought up. The cynics might say that micro-interventions are certainly nice, but uh, you know we would still need those grand structural changes like institutional reforms or market stru uh, structure reforms, um, and which are ultimately the, the quote-unquote, the kind of changes that, that ultimately matter and make our world a better place and, and transformative. Uh, and, and I think you, you said uh, we, we very much need uh, the small steps and string them together. So would you mind just telling us a little bit more about that? Like, right. well, why do small steps matter so much? Because I feel like uh, it being in the, you know, we call Princeton the orange bubble. Like we, we maybe the kids here are sometimes care too much about the grand steps and not enough about the st small steps. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm all for grand steps if you know how to do them. <laughs> I mean, if I could, you know, if I could do a grand step and, you know, end all wars or um, uh, that would be great. Um, but I don't know how to do that. Uh, so, you know, and I would love countries to become Singapore overnight. Um, but, but realistically, we know a thing, a bunch of things not to do that will make it worse and will, you know, really screw your economy. But we don't know how to make you Singapore overnight, or even in ten years. And in the meantime, we know a lot about how to make sure that your kid doesn't die. And so let's work on those things. Um, let's also work on the sort of medium level things that we do know how to do. So I'll give you an example. Like if you think of the sort of big picture thing is, you know, we've got to make, uh, you know, get rid of conflict or, or change an entire economy so that it's a Singapore. Um, and as I say, I, we know something about that, but we it's very hard for me to tell a government practically what do you do tomorrow to make that happen with any sense of, you know, high probability. I can tell you things that you shouldn't do that will make it less likely to happen, but there's not a lot that I can tell you practically. This will guarantee that you will get to Singapore in 10 years. But there are things I can tell you to do that will almost certainly guarantee that things will be better. So, so there's sort of really big picture. Then there's quite small stuff of like you know, exactly how you should reorganize your health budget to make it optimal and less kids die. And then there's kind of medium level things, um, which I think we're increasingly knowing about. So, so, you know, a small level would be let's build a new school. A medium level would be let's change the curricula in all schools to improve how much you learn in schools. Which is still a pretty big step. Like Which is, is a pretty damn big step. But you know how we know how to do that? Through small All, Through lots of small micro-testing. 
So I am now going in and advising countries about how to organize their education system. And the reason I feel relatively confident about how to do that is because there have been hundreds of small micro testings about how this kind of teaching worked better than that kind of teaching, which looks very small when you look at it individually. But when you look at 100 RCTs together, a picture emerges that the biggest thing that is wrong about education in developing countries is that they are the curriculum and the whole incentives in the system are designed to teach to the top of the class. And it's, and, you know, so in some data in India, um, you can see that, uh, you know, in ninth grade, the kids were at a learning level of between third grade and sixth grade. None of them were anywhere close to the curriculum of the ninth grade curriculum. And yet the teacher's only requirement in India, only legal requirement is that they finish the ninth grade curriculum when the kids aren't anywhere close to knowing that curriculum. So, so there's lots of data that supports this idea of teaching at the right level, we call it, which can be an individual program, but it can also be just a general philosophy for how do you organize your education system. But the reason we can give good advice to ministries of education about how to reform their education programs is because of all this accumulation of evidence about different things that worked in schools that all point to the fact that it's really about the level of learning and matching the level of learning to the what kids know. Everything that works does has that as part of an element of it. Well, that's that's such a powerful response. Um, how you know the the bigger picture would emerge from those micro steps, yep. and you just cannot go in with the theoretical model and say this is how we're going to do economics or policy. No, that's okay. That's let me just totally pick makes... you up on one thing yeah. though. I'm a big fan of theoretical models. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a big fan of big picture. I'm going to assume that this is how to transform the world without building it up from the micro level. So I how think... do you how do you combine the two? The theoretical top okay. down and So the... so well, the theoretical, I mean it's just kind of being a bit precise with language here. So a theoretical model in economics can be quite a micro level. Yes. Yes. Okay, so you do a, a you do a theoretical to understand what's happening at the really micro level, and then you test it, and that and it's sometimes the mic, the theoretical models that help you understand to put together those hundred RCTs and see how they all speak together. You know why they're all telling you the same story, even though there are a hundred different RCTs on a hundred different programs. Sometimes theory helps you understand why all of those hundred are actually telling you the same story. Um, but you have to go and go to your classes to, you know, really understand that in detail and see how a model can help you understand the data. That's different from kind of a broad brush thinking about, I think it's that, you know, um, the way to the big way to change the world is, you know, we should all be thinking about, I don't know, it's technology yeah, yeah. or something like, yeah, whatever. But like, it's actually when you when it may be at these big, broad issues about our robots going to take over the world. Um, but but you they, you've got to translate yeah. it into actual practical things that you would do differently tomorrow. 
Like when you're doing working in policy, it's you you got to you got to translate what you're learning into Absolutely. what do you actually do differently tomorrow? And some of these big grand picture things is should we do markets or you know is 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 capitalism better than social like I whatever. What do I literally do differently tomorrow? <laughs> Um, You're very pragmatic and very. I'm, I'm, yes. That's me. Yeah. That's great. So, uh, it must drives you crazy when you see uh, <laughs> kids just coming in and have those grand policy proposals or policy papers or whatever, right? <laughs> well, what I what, what I say to I mean I, I'm less frustrated when I see someone who's, you know, starting out on their career with that <laughs> because I feel like there's a there's a way to a room for error for now. <laughs> yeah, I'm more frustrated when I see people do it who should know better, but. No, I say, let's take that idea, let's break it down into the component parts, let's see what is what do you practically want me to do differently tomorrow on the basis of this, and then and then let's test whether that practical change actually works. So great, have a big idea, but break it down into practical components and then test those practical components. Uh, it sounds like since that you are very much in favor of uh, being pragmatic and, and taking the necessary small steps, uh, are you more skeptical of some of the quote-unquote revolutionary frameworks that s some politicians or policymakers might propose? I'll, I'll give you a quick example because we, we talked about malaria and you know r rolling out um, certain policy initiatives that actually would help people a lot and reduce deaths. Uh, but there are also, you know, I, I, I watched this Netflix documentary called Na Unnatural Selection, which is basically about genetic editing. And those uh, scientists are saying the policy actions are too slow or, or having negotiations and whatever is too slow. Let's just uh, come up with a way to genetically en engineer, uh, engineer the mosquitoes and uh, we're done with the problems. Uh, which would actually right. cause other ethical concerns because you're actually, you know, right. engineer the nature. So, but but for them, it just seems like yeah, you're you're taking uh, very nice small steps, but we go, people are still dying, and I gotta I gotta do it now, and just let me edit this. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know. I I can't speak to sort of whether genetically modifying <laughs> mosquitoes. It's part of my pragmatic philosophy is to try and not talk about things that I don't know anything yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I understand that people get frustrated when they think that more progress is needed. Um, we ought to make, you know, bigger change. I, th I can completely understand why people are frustrated about we're not making enough progress on climate change. Um, but again, my question is, yes, but what do we do? Like, what's the most effective thing that we do that we can do now to tackle climate change? Um, I'm not so interested in the big sort of, you know, is is capitalism the cause of climate change or sort of or or even uh, I mean, I think it's useful and important that we're modeling what the possible, you know, what the possible futures look like. And I'm glad someone's doing that. That's not my expertise. My expertise is is looking at the evidence and saying what's the most what's the most cost effective thing that we can do now to address both the creation you know both putting carbon into the atmosphere and helping make countries more resilient to the to the climate change that's already here so so yeah i'm 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 a very pragmatic person and i when i hear big ideas 
They you can want to break very, it down. I want to break it down, which doesn't mean that I don't understand that those big ideas are quite important for inspiring people. Exactly, raising Waking, awareness. Raising awareness. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that, that, that totally makes sense. So uh, I guess for, uh, that's a question also for the younger generation of students. Do you recommend them to go get a PhD to get those technical skills? Because when you talked about get, looking into the evidence and getting your hands dirty and actually do those pragmatic work, uh, what kind of uh, expertise do we need these days? And what kind of expertise do you, do you foresee us uh, needing in the next 10, 20 years? Right. So I think anybody who's interested in policy and influencing policy should make sure that they have, they learn enough to be able to really understand the literature in their area, whether that's climate change or economics or health or whatever their chosen specialty is. Um, now, I've spent my life going backwards and forwards from policy to academia. Within policy, I was, I, I um, you know, my role was to kind of look at the latest research and translate that and say, what does that mean for for government policy? What should we be doing as a result of that? When I was in, in academics, I was doing research that I was trying to feed in, asking the questions that policymakers were, wanted to know the answers to, uh, and trying to make that as kind of most obvious, um, most, most relevant and easy to understand for the policymakers who I wanted to influence. So I I can't tell you whether you should do a PhD or whether you should, you know, different people are different. They have different comparative advantages. Um, but I do think if you're interested in policy, either in academia or in policy, you need to understand the other side. Right. So researchers should understand what is motivating policymakers so that they can use that to decide what work they should work on and try and get their research used. You've got to understand the language, the problems that the other group is interested in. You've got to learn how to communicate with them because there's at the moment we use really different words to mean the same thing and we're just talking a different language. And being a translator between those two worlds is what I've done all my life and I think it's a really valuable and important role. So. But even if you're in policy, I would really encourage you and um, make sure that you stay up as much as possible. And I talk to my economists within DFID all the time about this. You need to, you came in with economic skills, but you've got to keep them up. You've got to keep them refreshed. You've got to stay engaged with the academic literature. Don't just read the summary. Every so often read the actual paper, underlying paper come to seminars, listen to podcasts, you know, stay up on what's what's um, emerging, what's emerging, because the field is changing, and all fields are changing. And if you're going to do your job, even if you're not in academia, you need to know what is coming out of research. And you need to, you know, take the time when you're still in college to make sure you acquire the skills to be able to interrogate that literature effectively and really understand what's a what's a good paper and what's a bad paper. Uh, would you mind just t telling us a little bit more about your experience uh, back in academia? Uh, and also, I guess the fundamental question is, why aren't the people doing it? I mean, it seems quite uh, self-explanatory that the government should interact with the academia and the academia shouldn't understand the policymakers, right? So why yeah, wasn't so it happening? A, yeah. Well, there's a lot of well, effort to try and do that on both sides. I think it needs a lot of investment in terms of understanding what are 
what are the needs of the others, how they speak. Um, and so, so something I often, you know, academics will often come to policymakers and talk to them about their particular one project and say, look, I did this study, I found this thing works, you should scale it up. But whereas policymakers are much more interested in understanding not just that study, but how it fits with all the other studies. And actually, academics know that. Like, they have to teach across the whole literature. They they did that one study because they thought it was a gap in the knowledge, and they know all of the other studies around it. So they actually know that. But unfortunately, when they come and talk to policymakers, they often only talk about a very narrow part of what they know. They just will talk about one study. Um, and instead, I've been encouraging them to come and sort of talk about how they fit in the bigger picture. How it fits in the bigger picture, what some of the bigger picture lessons are. Because the people you're talking to may not be able to replicate that exact study, but they may have lessons from it that are really important to the decisions that they're trying to make elsewhere. So, you know, the malaria bed nets example, um, you know, the study that looked at, at um, showed that if you pay for uh, if you don't, if you get malaria bed nets for free, you're still just as likely to use them, and that paying a small amount massively reduces the amount that people, the number of people who will buy a a, a bed net. Now that's not relevant to the U.S. We don't have malaria, right? <laughs> but actually, it's incredibly relevant to us. Absolutely, because people all people in the U.S. won't pay a small amount for preventative health. They won't invest in preventative health by walking up the stairs or, you know, things that are good for them in their long-term health. It's the same underlying principle. It's the same underlying principle that people are really bad at paying a cost now for a benefit in the future. So don't think of this as a malaria bed net study. Think of this as telling us about how human beings are really bad at paying a cost now for their for improving their health in the long run. So, so you could very much say that the lessons we learn from underdeveloped world can very much apply to the ones in the developed Absolutely. countries. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What, what was your your work at JPOW uh, like back when you were in MIT? So I was doing a lot of this um, work on, you know, these individual randomized trials, but also trying to put them together. So I spend a lot of time, um, you know, trying to take the 100 RCTs in an area or 20 RCTs in an area and saying what are drawing out the more general policy conclusions. I sort of have had a passion for that. Um, so the, you know, the what I talked about in terms of education, that a lot of these different RCTs have all told us actually something fundamental about education in the developing world that often the the level of teaching is too high for where the kids are. That's some of the lessons that I drew out when I was at, at MIT. And then I, when I went to DFID, I kind of took those lessons and started trying to implement them um, within the department. And I have to say, I mean, diff, the reason I went to the Department for International Development in the UK is they are very evidence-driven organization. Um, you know, it's not like they weren't aware of many of these RCTs already. Their education uh, teams were aware of it. But I think I helped... I helped in some ways bring, you know, that that broader perspective and I that that idea that we're not just looking at one study, we need to draw the analysis across all of them to draw these kind of bigger insights and then use those bigger insights for designing new policy. 
So、uh, absolutely, yeah. Because I was、uh, I was just in、uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts,、uh, visiting a, a the former actually assistant director for the the Julius Center. She's she's right now at MIT with her husband. Her husband just moved to MIT to become a professor, and I was talking to her about some of the recent work being done. I mean, the the most recent Nobel Prize in economics、mm-hmm. was given to、uh, to Flo, you know, Banerjee. Like those people were doing policy work. I mean, it's it's actually very very. A quote unquote novel that you know the Nobel Prize will be given to people doing actual sort of more pragmatic work per se. So, so how, how? Yeah. So I was I was working closely、yeah. with Esther and Abhijit.、Um, absolutely thrilled that they got the Nobel Prize、um, along with Michael Kramer.、Um, so I I think I think it's. I think what was maybe different. So, so I would argue that some previous Nobel prizes have gone to people who are doing important policy work. So, um, um, Alwyn Roth did some really important work on kidney exchanges.、Um, it was a sort of fascinating economics、yeah. of, of matching. How do you more effectively match? But he also took that to sort of very practically to improving. Uh, the matches of kidneys, and you know, more people get kidney transplants now as a result of his path-breaking work. So, I think what was somewhat different about about、um, about the Jay Powell work and Esther and Abhijit's work is, you know, they did set up this whole institution that I was running,、um, that with a lot of staff that are then working directly with. Governments and NGOs around the world, so it was kind of more institutionalizing this work and the policy work, and not just saying, "Well, let the academic go and do the talk and try and persuade people," but but leverage that by building a whole infrastructure to help governments take on board this evidence. It doesn't. We shouldn't think of academic work or evidence as being. You go and tell a government that this works, and they go, "Oh yes, brilliant, we'll do it." And you walk away, and they do it. That's just just not how things work. It takes a lot of work to figure out.、Uh, you know, first of all, they may say, "Oh, that's great," and then they forget, and you know, they don't have time to figure out. How I would do that? Where I'd get the money from to do it? How to actually implement? How、it. to actually implement it? Like, okay, the, you know, when it was done before, it used these people, but those people aren't available. So how? What? You know, are we going to use volunteers? Are we going to use school teachers? We, who's going to actually do it? So there's just a thousand micro questions, and so the innovation I think with JPL is that actually build an infrastructure so that if someone gets excited and wants to do it. There, there's actually a team that can come in and like help them think through those details,、um, and that's really important for getting the evidence into action. Is to help people kind of work through those details.、Uh, absolutely, uh, we we we're kind of running out of time. I didn't even get a chance to touch on your work with Michael Krimer. You guys co-authored this book, Strong Medicine: Creating Incentives for. Pharmaceutical research on the neglected diseases. Why don't we just quickly talk about the、okay. book? But before that,、uh, very quickly. So you worked with Duflo and Kramer. So maybe Nobel Prize twenty twenty one next next in line. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I'm very honored to be part of you know the team that contributed basically. And 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 Abhijit Astra and Michael were all very generous in saying this is a this is a Nobel for a community.、Um, 
And I was absolutely thrilled when the Nobel was announced. You had spontaneous parties across Kenya, where a lot of the first randomized trials were done that, that led to the Nobel Prize, of people in Kenya who are working on RCTs now in many different organizations. You know, j doesn't actually have an office in Kenya, but just all sorts of organizations that have been associated with this work over many years and done RCTs. And they thought it was their Nobel Prize. They were celebrating. Absolutely. And that was just, you you know, uh, dozens. They should feel tra- that way. Yeah. yeah and and yeah. so I feel, you know, just as they did, I feel proud to have been part of the community that, that, that led to this. Uh, that, that's awesome. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about this book? Because it, it seems to be about a very important issue of basically governments yep. not really having an incentive to, to do some important social good. Yeah. So... Um, in general, we as the world underinvest in innovation. Um, you know, ideas are a public good. Uh, you invent one, but um, you know, other people can use it, and it doesn't actually use up the idea. So it's a sort of classic global public good. Um, and but there's a even more fundamental problem in that we don't invest in. So we invented the patent system to solve this problem, uh, but then. You charge high prices, and then the poor don't have access to the innovation. It's a particular problem for diseases. uh, We talk about neglected diseases here, so diseases of the developing world. So something like malaria, um, dengue, these are diseases that are very prevalent in the uh, developing world, but they're not in the rich world. So nobody really has an incentive to invent a drug or even worse, a vaccine because uh, there are particular distortions that mean that you make less money if you invent a vaccine, um, to to address the needs of the developing world. Because normally we invent a drug, we sell it to the rich world, people make money, and then when it comes off patent, it goes to the poor world. But if it's if it's malaria and there's no malaria in the rich world, then... you, you, know, you don't even invent it in the first place. So, I mean, obviously, there are government grants to try and do it, but that's kind of a tiny amount of money compared Absolutely. to the amount of money that goes into rich world diseases. So, so we, we said, say in this book, well, what if you – it's the market demand that, that generates innovation in all the rich world diseases. What if we created a market um, uh, for poor world diseases and said that we as donors would commit to – buy a vaccine for, say, malaria um, or HIV if it was invented. If it's not invented, we don't waste any money because we don't have to buy it. It's only if you pres- if you manage to come up with an HIV vaccine that meets all of these criteria, we would buy it. And then people would have an incentive to try and develop, it, develop one. And this idea was actually taken up and um, there was a commitment to buy a pneumococcal vaccine um, and and spend $1.5 billion on a pneumococcal vaccine. A pneumococcal vaccine was invented and has been distributed to more than uh, 1.5 million kids and has uh, saved 700,000 lives. Sounds amazing. Wow. So I'd love to see it happen in other places. And indeed, you know, that I've sort of starting to talk to people about is this a mechanism that could be used, say, in climate or in other, you know, other areas where there are problems, there are distortions in the market that mean that the private sector is not putting as much investment into something 
because the social returns to an innovation would be so much higher than the private returns. Absolutely. So, so where do you kind of uh, see the debate going between, you know, people saying, oh, for public goods like you know healthcare, the government should really intervene and provide it, and there are people who say, ah, oh, but the government would become inefficient, and you need the the you know quote unquote the free markets, and then let the private sector figure it out. So when it comes to things like that, this is clearly a sign of you know, quote unquote market failure that we we study in economics yep. classes. So. Uh, where do you see the relationship between government and, and private sector coming? Well, so you have to take, I'm going to do my classic thing, like break it down. <laughs> what's the specific question? And Absolutely. then say, and say, what's the private failure? And what's the government failure? Because governments don't work. Governments have all sorts of screwed up incentives too. So you basically on a case by case basis, you have to figure out which is better and which is worse. And you have all sorts of different tools for intervening. You can have subsidies to the private sector to do it, or you can say, well, no, the government's going to do it, but we might contract out. The government's going to pay for it, but we might contract out to the private sector. Um, so it's that's not it's not that one is better than the other. They're, diff, they're good at doing different things. And so you've got to take what is the what is the market failure in this particular case? What are the different tools for solving that market failure? And then, as I say, what are the government failures? So, you know, one of the answers to the fact that there is a uh, malaria vaccine would be, well, we'll just pay this university to come up with a malaria vaccine. But that requires the government bureaucracy to pick who should work on it. Right, and governments may or may not be very good at making those and making those decisions. Now, obviously, you can try peer review and whatever, but but you but you're still you're still saying, well, I think this vaccine is possible, and I'm going to pay somebody to do it. Whereas if you just step back and do a sort of uh, a more market version of it, which are AMC, yeah. which is to say, I will buy it if someone comes up with it, but the private sector is going to come up with it, then you're sort of doing the government's buying it, but you're using the benefits of the private sector because you as a government aren't choosing who, who to do it. Who to do it. Specifically, absolutely. So you've got to think what's government good at doing, what's it not good at doing, what's the private sector good at doing, and what's it is. And are there mechanisms where you can, you know, the government, the private sector may be really bad at doing something. That doesn't mean the government has to do it. The government has all sorts of other levers Taxes, subsidies, regulation, incentives, these sort of market commitments. And let's not be ideological. Let's just figure out which is the best way to achieve the objectives that we want to achieve. And the kind of, for me, the ideology just gets in the way of figuring out what's the most technocratically effective solution. Absolutely. Uh, I'll just have a, another couple quick questions to wrap up. This has been a, just a wonderful conversation, but. What's what remains to be the most pressing issues in global development today? You would say, uh, what are some of the things that up on the horizon you're paying attention to? Um, so we started the conversation with fragility and conflict, and how more and more of the poor are going to live in fragile states. So that's way up there. I think climate change has to be way up there. Um, climate change is already hurting the poorer around the world. You know, there's already more extreme heat. Um, that's going to be a, a huge issue going forward. Um, it's obviously a huge issue for the rich world too, but we have more resources to make ourselves resilient. 
Um, so tackling climate change has to, has is a big one. Uh, you know, I do a lot of work in the Sahel. In uh, West Africa, a very vulnerable region, very vulnerable to climate change, and some of the poorest places on earth. So the combination of poverty, conflict, and climate change is going to be a huge issue there. I also work in Bangladesh, which is going to kind of the whole place is going to be flooded if if sea level rises. So, um, so I think that those two uh, are really important, um, and and I think. Uh, at the moment, encouraging people, even though they're going through hard times in in the rich world, to continue to care about development is really important. Absolutely. Uh, just a quick follow up to that question, though. What about the argument that it's very hard to get through all the? You know, you actually made this argument about overburdening with the priority list and and yep. uh, i was watching the democratic debate last night i don't know if you follow american politics but everybody is like oh i want to bring in universal health care i want to fix the the inequality i want to they, they have so many things and climate change and you know yep. so, so so do you ever foresee us actually getting through this laundry list <laughs> so i only gave you three uh <laughs> complete laundry list no but i think the i think the right thing to do is when you're working in a particular country you have to prioritize for that country so it's not so i gave you three things that i worry about overarching but it's going to be different in different countries um so in some places it's you know conflict is going to be the main thing in other places um, climate change isn't. So I, you know, if there's a country, if there's a poor country um, that's not currently using much energy, I'm not going to mainly worry about if they increase their use of fossil fuels. And I realize that that might, some people might get really upset with that, but the amount of fossil fuels that these countries are using is just tiny. And, and, the and they've got to grow. And the marginal utility, like it's the, the so, benefit. like that's not where I'm going to put my, effort. Like if I want to reduce fossil fuel consumption, I'm going to worry about the countries that are using a lot of it. Um, And they've got to increase their, they've got to increase their, their energy use. Um, You know, it's, it's, so you got to, you got to be proportionate. You got to think about what's the priority in a given situation. You know, if we talk about education in some places, it's getting kids into school and others, it's increasing learning. Like it's just, you, what is the right, you know, in some places it's malaria and other places it's not. So you kind of got to look at the country, do a diagnosis and say, what are the, what are the things that are really important to fix and are fixable? Like there are other things, there are often things that are really difficult and important, but we can't really do anything about them. So for me, it's the sweet spot of big, important, driving a lot of pain you know, in terms of poverty, but as we say, poverty is not just about income, so driving a lot of unhappiness and a lot of problems, but we have some hope of fixing. Absolutely. Um, what's What would be one contrarian view that you have but <laughs> other people might disagree with? Uh, so that point about, you know, um, that there are countries in the world where it's completely acceptable for, for them to increase their use of fossil fuels might be one of them. Uh, probably hear back from people on that. Um, uh, other contrary views. It's hard. Eh? <laughs> I mean, I you know, I'm also a government official, so I probably oh, have to be a little bit <laughs> careful, careful about not being too too outlandish. But um, 
Um, what about a policy punchline? We also ask our guests at the, at the end, what's the punchline for the show? We recently added this contrarian view thing, but I think it might be. Yeah, well, I, I think I've already given you one. Um, so so a, a policy punchline, um, I'll stick with the, um, you know, we get to the big picture by starting with the small steps. You have to break it down. And, you have and- to break it down. I just wish, I mean, I look at a lot of those presidential debates where I look at policymakers and politicians talking about things. Uh, I think I think they have a tendency to draw the conversation at a grand level, at a bigger level, so that people don't actually look at the, the details. Uh, and Yeah, I mean, that's hard to do in a debate, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there's, there's something about you need people, to, you know, as we were to saying, you need people. to inspire people. Absolutely. Um, and give a sort of picture of the general thrust, and that's important. But um, I guess I don't don't be ideological, be practical. Look at the evidence, and you know, on. So the way I think about it, I I, I break every problem down in in into three things. Okay, what's the diagnosis of the problem? What does the data say is actually the problem here? Then what what has worked elsewhere? What are the general lessons that we know about human behavior that will help you figure out this problem? And then what are the implementation details? Like how do you actually make this work on the ground in this situation? And that might be very different in different countries. So so my general advice to people, like maybe the punchline is most problems you can look at in that simple three structure framework diagnose accurate diagnosis learning from others and learning from general lessons and then get the implementation details right so so this uh i guess one last last question you don't even have to answer this my my because you said learn from other people's mistakes and stuff have you made any of the mistakes that you look back at your obviously very very successful and meaningful career that you feel like oh i wish i could have done this uh you know in a different oh. way 10 years oh, ago. Oh, I have made so many mistakes. <laughs> I have made so many mistakes. Um, you know, for, from the big to the small. But um, so, you know, despite all of what I know and care about of getting understanding the local context right, I can't tell you the number of times where I've, you know, sat, sat in Cambridge when I was a researcher designing a questionnaire, designing a program, I've gone into the field um, to start kind of piloting and testing something. And within about half an hour, I'm thinking, what was I thinking? (laughs) That was such a dumb idea. It's just no way could you make that work on the ground. So I think, you know, I've so there's a lot of those where I've just you know, had ideas that seemed like they made a lot of sense and then gone to kind of the practical reality of trying to make them work and just realized very quickly that it's just not a pra- not practical. Um, so, you know, I could give you very, like specific examples of that, but I think that's, that's, that's the main point. I think I've often realized, um, you know, that I've said things in ways that weren't you know, I was trying to convey something, but I've, you know, hurt someone's feelings or made them uh, react badly. So, you know, you've got to, when you try and convince people, 
being too sort of right, undermining so, yeah. undermining their their position is um, often not the way to do it. It's sort of, you know, yes and <laughs> right? I mean that's just and you think, oh, that was a missed opportunity because I got them upset by kind of attacking their fundamental principles and, and the then I'm not and then the emotions off. get in the way and that's not going to be effective. So just Every day, I, I get to the end of the day and think, "Oh, I could have done that better." But that's what you need to do. Like, you, if you're gonna get better over time, you've got you've got to constantly question yourself. Um, Absolutely. And 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 you know, was that the best way to do it? Of course. Well, this is a great lesson for all of us, and great note to end the interview on. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today, Professor Glenister. Yeah, It's great to be here. Awesome. So this concludes my interview with Rachel Glenister. She is the chief economist, economist for uh, uh, UK's uh, DFID, which is development. Uh, what's the, what's development the, for international development. For, for international development, exactly. Um, and uh, please follow us on policypunchline.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, if you'd like to find more information about us or uh, propose a new idea for other interview guests, please feel free to, to email us. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.